And now here from God's Word, Revelation chapter 4, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Once again, this is God's holy word. Pay close attention. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and all around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. This is God's holy word. Let us give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Savior Jesus who has revealed himself in his word. Today, he walks among the candlesticks and he inspects and visits his churches. I pray that in us he would find a faithful people ready to hear his voice, ready to dine with him, ready to invite him in and sit down with him and enjoy his sweet fellowship. And so that's what we desire right now, Lord, by the preaching of the word and by the reading of the word, Fill us with your spirit and clarify for us more and more as we study this book who our Savior is and the kind of worship that surrounds your throne. We pray that we would engage in that worship today by hearing your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here we are in the year 2020. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's the year 2020. So where's my jetpack? Where's my flying car? When, when can we book a trip to Pluto for vacation? Or maybe even the moon. I mean, we, I'll take the moon. We grew up with all these, and I don't know about you, I did. I grew up with these science fiction visions of uh, what the future would be like, these concepts and these assumptions about what life in the future would look like. And it seems very clearly that the predictions of the science fiction of my youth was off by, if not decades, then centuries. You know, Blade Runner, anybody grow up with that movie? Blade Runner, that was set in 2019. I mean, that was, a, that was a vision of the future, wasn't it? That was last year. All that was supposed to happen last year and it didn't happen. We don't have androids today. Back to the Future has a scene, well, Back to the Future 2 has a scene in 2015 and they have flying skateboards and we don't have flying skateboards yet. Uh, both 
2001 A Space Odyssey and 1984 each gave us very different predictions of those years, and those did not happen. We don't have space travel the way that we have, you know, in long distances like in 2001. But I'm still holding out hope. I'm still holding out a little hope because the Jetsons was set in 2062, and so we still have time. That means there's a chance that maybe we'll have robot housekeepers in, in our lifetime, maybe. Imagining what the future is like is a mixed bag of fascinating thoughts about technology and the possibilities of life in the future, those wonderful things that might happen. It's a mixed bag of all the optimism that we might have about the future, together with anxious thoughts about all the ways that things could go wrong, given all the ways that we have created to destroy civilization and to destroy ourselves. But that, that curiosity, that desire to pull back the curtain of time and to peek into the future is, is what drives our creative predictions about the future. And it could be that very same curiosity that sends people to the book of Revelation. We expect and assume that the book of Revelation is a treasure chest of secret predictions about what's going to happen in our future. And if we could just crack the code, then maybe we can map out with some sense of certainty how the next few years are going to play out, whether for good or bad. But the book of Revelation doesn't pull back the curtain necessarily on our future so much as it pulls back the curtain on heaven. We don't look into the future in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we look into heaven and the heaven's courts. Remember the book of Revelation is called that. It's called Revelation because it is the uncovering. The word apocalypse means uncovering, the unveiling. The unveiling of what or who? Well, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling of Jesus. And so in this book, we get to see him in his glorious resurrection power, Jesus leads, he reigns, he conquers in this book. And so it's not a code book for interpreting current events or nations or leaders or wars. However, I would say in this sense, in this one sense, looking into heaven is looking into our future because Jesus prayed to the Father, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I can safely trust that the Father answers the Son's prayers so that His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Revelation gives us this stylized, symbolic picture of heaven's courts. And in seeing that and in witnessing that and learning how things run in heaven, we see our future, how things will run on earth, how things will be done on earth. And so when, when heaven opens to us, when we get this vision in Revelation, we find things that are way more fascinating than you know, flying skateboards and robots and, and rockets to the moon or rockets to Mars. And we find way more than a depressing future, which is the way uh, it is often read. What we do find, something far more fascinating, something far more encouraging, we find that heaven is populated with these wonderful creatures who exist to please God and worship Jesus and that their interactions and the things that go on around the throne of God uh, overflow onto earth into in, in incredible, wonderful 
awesome and terrifying ways when, when he deals with uh, his enemies. So, so that's, that's the book, and that's what we're trying to understand, and that's how we're, we're working to uh, grapple with the content of Revelation. So let's dig in to chapter 4 now. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. We've heard a lot about doors in the previous chapters, in the previous Lord's Days that we've looked at uh, Revelation. Um, Jesus promised to let the believers in Smyrna out of prison. He's going to open the prison doors and, and let them out. Jesus opens doors for Philadelphia that no one can shut. And he also says in that same letter, when I shut a door, nobody can open it. Jesus asked Laodicea to open the door and let him in. Now Jesus opens the door and invites John in, keeping with this theme that holy sanctuaries, holy places have boundaries. Eden had a, an angelic gatekeeper with a flaming sword. The tabernacle and the temple, has, uh, the, they both had walls and courts and doors and barriers. God charges his people and his angels to preserve and keep and to guard holy and precious things, to not let them be overrun. And ultimately, it's, it's Jesus himself who says, I, I am the one who keeps the keys. So Jesus opens the door to heaven. Jesus has the keys, Jesus holds the door open, and he invites John in. John doesn't have to fight his way in, John doesn't have to beg his way in. You can't open it if you wanted to, if you tried, you would fail. You have to be invited by the one who opens the door to come up into heaven. And John gets this invitation. Uh, the Lord Jesus opens the door. And the first voice which I heard, continuing, the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. John told us back in chapter 1 that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day when all this began to unfold. So worship on the Lord's Day is the context for all the events that are going to unfurl in, in Revelation. At the beginning of our study several weeks ago, we saw that the whole book of Revelation follows a liturgical order. So let's remember, where are we in the worship service now? What has happened so far? What part of the liturgy are we in in Revelation chapter 4? Well, at the very beginning, in chapter 1, we had a call to worship, right? John has already heard this trumpet blast of a voice one time back in chapter 1, verse 10, uh, where we read, I was, this is John speaking, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And Jesus calls John into his presence, calls him to worship. Uh, Jesus grabs John, gets his attention, and calls him into his presence. And there Jesus reveals himself in all of his majesty. And John responds by falling on his face which is what you do when you come into God's presence. You fall down on your knees. You fall down on your face. You don't wander into his presence, casually late, scrolling Twitter, sipping a hot drink, dancing to the garage band that's playing. You don't, that's not what you do. That's not how you come into God's presence. You don't come in coldly detached while uh, uh, professional priests do things for you in worship while you're just uh, an observer, while you're just a spectator of what's going on in worship. That's, that's not what you do. What do you do when you come into worship? 
Jesus grabs you and calls you into his presence and you fall down on your face. That's what you do. That's what you must do. This is how we approach God. And when we fall down on our face, as we do every Lord's Day, you confess your sin. You confess real sins. We confess sins together. You see, in a uh, Christian culture that we have created where you don't do this regularly and you don't do it corporately, that is confess your sins together, and you don't do it in such a way where you're confessing real sins, not, not made up uh, uh, false guilt uh, things that, that uh, are of no consequence, that you have no responsibility over, that you have nothing to do with, but somehow you're just uh, uh, buying into this gnawing sense of general unease about the world and you're internalizing all of this. And this somehow is, I've got to do something about this. You see, when you, when you don't have regular corporate confession of sin, you are prone, you are left open to heaping guilt on yourself and heaping accusations on yourself that you may or may not have anything to do with. And there's no remedy for this social injustice guilt that we are laden with by our culture. There's no remedy. You can't try enough. You can't pay enough. You can't, there's nothing to do. You just, you're just guilty. You just got this original sin and there is no cleansing from it. That's not the Christian faith and that's not the gospel. When Jesus grabs us and we come into his presence, we fall down on our face, we confess our sins and then he lifts us up and he says, you're forgiven. It's over. You're washed. I've forgotten about it already because he puts our sins behind his back. That's how we deal with sin. We don't, we don't wallow in purgatory, in never ending false guilt consistently. Um, so, so that's what happens to John. Jesus lifts him up. He falls on his face because that's what you do when you come into the presence of God. You fall on your face and then you lift it up and then Jesus deals with his churches. So we have this cleansing section of Revelation where Jesus uh, inspects his churches. This is all what we've been reading the last few weeks. This is all repentance work. This is cleansing work. This is restorative work. The churches and people in the churches are out of fellowship and they need to get back into fellowship. So we have a call to worship and we have a cleansing section of Revelation. Well, what's next? What do you do next? What comes now? Well, you get called up into heaven to go hear the word of God and you get to eat with Jesus. God speaks. This is what happens next. God is going to speak. The scrolls are open. The word is open. We have, uh, we're, we're all headed toward the marriage supper of the Lamb. And every step is surrounded by this antiphonal, responsorial, corporate, liturgical music. But to get up there and to participate in all of this, there has to be an ascension. John has to ascend. And in worship, this is where we ascend on the Lord's Day after we've confessed our sins. We, we've been called into worship. We fall on our face. We confess our sins. And then we ascend in the spirit to worship with the angels and all the saints of all the ages and to hear God speak and to be fed with Jesus. We do this every Lord's day. When is, uh, when is the rapture? When does that happen? Uh, well, it happened this morning. It happened about 15, 20 minutes ago. We were all caught up in the spirit and brought into the presence of God to hear him speak and to eat at his table. Uh, the rapture is going to happen next Sunday too. You can set your clock by it. It's going to happen about 945 in this congregation, the rapture is going to happen. It's going to happen the following Sunday too. It's going to happen the following Lord's Day too. So don't, don't be left behind. You, know, you don't want to be left behind. It's going to be called into his presence. 
And that's what happens. That's what we're doing. And, and to underscore this and to remind us that this is what we're doing, that we're being caught up into the presence of God to hear him speak and to be fed by Jesus. That's why we've started saying, lift up your hearts. And you say, we lift them up to the Lord. And then we sing, holy, holy, holy with the angels. There's a pattern of worship we see in scripture. We're not making things up. And John Calvin wrote this in the Institutes. He said, in order that pious souls may duly apprehend Christ in the supper, they must be raised up to heaven. And, and it was established of old that before consecration, the people should be told in a loud voice to lift up their hearts. That's, that's what Calvin says. And so we're following and, and loving and uh, appreciating Brother Calvin's um, uh, words there. It, it was at the heart of Calvin's understanding of the Lord's Supper and, and, and his understanding of the Lord's presence of the table, it was at the heart of that, that it is we who are ascending to him in worship. We are going up by the Spirit to eat with Jesus in, in worship. It, Jesus is not descending physically in some way so that we have to figure out how is he present physically in the bread and the wine. So at the heart of the reformed understanding of the Lord's Supper is this, the Sursum Corda, lift, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord, that we are ascending. It's, it's critical and it's foundational and it's part of our, our view of communion. It's built, it's built on this understanding. So this is where we are in the order of worship and revelation. John is summoned to come up and see things which are going to shortly take place. This is, these timestamps are all over the book. He, Jesus has already said this, that this thing that he's going to show him will happen shortly. The time is at hand. Surely I come quickly, Jesus says. Uh, in this book so far, Jesus has named first century places, He's detailed first century threats to the church. He's spoken to first century pastors of uh, first century churches. Uh, to them, Jesus says, to these people in this historical context, Jesus says to them, addressed to them, the things that I'm saying here are about to take place. These are going to happen shortly. Uh, uh, the, these, uh, the, these markers are all over the book that the destruction of the old world, the creation of the new world, the, the, the way that God is bringing all things under Christ, he's dethroning Adam, he's dethroning Satan, he's taking back the power delegated to the empires of the old oikomune, the old ecumenical empires. He's erasing the distinction between Jew and Gentile. He's folding up the old covenant and its society and culture and worship. And all of this, Jesus says, and he says it repeatedly, and he says it over and over and over. All of this is taking place very shortly. This is all happening now in your lifetime. As Jesus would say in Matthew 24, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And that's what we see in symbol from heaven's vantage point. We see all of these things play out. Let's continue in verse 2. Immediately, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So the one sitting on the throne is emblazoned in overwhelming light. The one sitting on the throne is shining and glistening like precious stones, jasper. Uh, some commentators say that may be an opal or a diamond. Um, sardius, which is a red stone, and emerald, which is a green stone. Three of the same stones that are on the high priest's breastplate, three of the same stones that are mentioned in, uh, uh, in, in being present in the Garden of Eden. 
the throne is, is, is shrouded in all of these co- colors, all of these overwhelmingly bright and clear colors, and the, and the throne is surrounded by the rainbow. The, the throne is shrouded by a rainbow. Now, God set his bow in the heavens after the flood as a memorial that he would never destroy the earth again, and, and that was a sign of his peace. Here we see the rainbow again, and it's not just a memorial for us. It's not just a reminder for us that God is not going to destroy the world that way again, but that this rainbow surrounds his throne that, so that wherever God looks, he looks through the rainbow. When he looks at the earth, he's looking at the earth through the rainbow. When he looks at the creatures and the elders and the angels surrounding his throne, he sees them through the rainbow. When we approach him today in worship, he looks at us through the rainbow. The rainbow surrounds his throne so that everything he looks at, he's looking at it through the rainbow. What does this mean? It means God is looking at us through his promises. He's looking at earth through his covenant. Thus, the world is preserved and he shows mercy because his covenant is ever present before his face. We forget his promises to us. We forget the covenant. We trample on the covenant. He doesn't forget. He doesn't forget because it's all around him all the time. The rainbow surrounds his throne. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So around God's throne are 24 other thrones of which, uh, on which 24 elders are sitting. This is, this is heaven's presbytery, right? The, the uh, uh, elders are arranged around the throne. These are God's counselors. That may sound strange to us at first, that, that God has counselors, that God has people in his court. But But then we think God is always engaging. He's always interacting with his people this way. When he was about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, what does he say? He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? God saw Abraham as, this, as, as his junior counselor. As I'm, I'm not going to hide anything from him. I'm going to reveal to him what I'm, I'm about to do. And then God proceeds to get Abraham's input on the judgment of the city. And Abraham seeks to intercede for the city. We, we remember how that all plays out. Uh, but, but God does not do it without consulting his prophet, without consulting his servant, Abraham. Yahweh brings Moses into his council chamber, and later he counsels with David over appropriate judgments for Israel. Uh, God listens to his servants, and he responds to them. Amos 3.7 says this, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. And then later in Amos, uh, in the midst of judgment, Amos cries out and says, Lord, this is too much. And Yahweh relents. And then there's another form of judgment. And Amos says, Lord, Lord, we can't take this. And then, and then Yahweh backs off in the midst of judgment because the prophet, the counselor, the, the, the junior um, uh, 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 chamber member, um, the ca- junior cabinet member of, of God's court responds and pleads for mercy. God listens to his servants. God has 
his counselors. Yahweh solicits the input of his people. And Jesus, especially Jesus, wants to hear from his bride. After all, what are we doing today? With the opportunity to ascend into the presence of God and to worship in the presence of God, what do we do? How do we, how do we take advantage of this? If you had 10 minutes with the president, I bet there was something you'd try to sneak in there, right? If you had 15 minutes with a senator, a powerful senator, you would, there would be things you would ask for. You'd say, hey, oh, this is a great honor. By the way, here's something that really is important to me, and I would love to see some movement on this. I'd love to see some action on this. Well, guess what? You're, you're not in the presence of a, uh, of a senator. You're not in the presence of a cabinet member. You're not in the presence of the president of the United States. You're in the presence today of the creator of all things. You're in the presence today of Jesus, the savior of the world. You're being called up into his presence. So what do we do? What do we, what do, we do when we get that opportunity? Well, we come with prayers. Well, first of all, we come with prayers of repentance. We confess our own sins, but also the sins of our congregation. And thirdly, we confess the sins of the whole world. Um, I'm sorry to go back to this. We, I've already talked about the confession of sin, but there's one more thing I wanted to cover. There may be time from time to time, things in the prayer of confession that you say, well, I'm not sure I do that. You know, I, I'm plenty guilty of, of some things, but but that's a sin that the Bible names that um, I'm not sure that applies to me on this Lord's Day. Well, so what does that mean? Um, well, maybe you didn't do all that thing this week, but we all commit these sins. We are prone to them. And we're also coming as priests asking for God to be merciful to the whole world. On top of that, we come confessing our sins. We come confessing the sins of our congregation. We come asking God to be merciful to the whole world. And then we also come into his presence with the Psalms on our lips. And we say, Lord, here are some things in the world that we want you to change. We want you to avenge your people. We want to fight against their accusers. Lord, put down their oppressors. Rise up, mighty warrior God, and fight and defend your heritage. So we pray the prayers and we sing the Psalms. Uh, we, we come into his presence and we also say, here are people who are sick and need deliverance. Here are people who are hurting and need your comfort. We function in this role as counselors in worship. God is not offended by counsel. God is not offended when we bring things to him that we want changed, when we want fixed. He wants to hear our prayers, our requests. And he even gave us 150 prayers to use right there in the middle of the Bible, 150 Psalms that he really wants to hear us sing. And those are all asking for him to do something and to change something and to transform something. So his throne is surrounded by his counselors, by his elders. Well, who are these 24? Well, there are 24 divisions of priests in the old covenant. There were 24 divisions of singers at the temple. So this is not a new idea for the throne of God to be surrounded by 24s. Later in Revelation, we read about that great garden city, the new Jerusalem that descends out of heaven. It has 12 gates and those 12 gates are named after the 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 foundations of that city and those 12 foundations are named after the 12 apostles. So are these 24 elders, the, uh, patriarchs, are they the heads of the tribes of Israel and the apostles? Maybe eventually, but when John sees this and when John writes this, most of the apostles are still alive. So I don't think John sees himself on a throne there around the throne of Jesus. 
So those apostles who are still alive working on earth aren't sitting on thrones in heaven simultaneously. So it seems to me that, that these thrones are occupied in Revelation 4 by angelic representatives. But at some point, these thrones are transferred to the prophet, I'm sorry, the patriarchs and the apostles. See, there's this transition taking place in the New Testament. Hebrews and Galatians both talk about the law being mediated to us through angels. And Psalm 8 says that man is made a little lower than the angels, but when you continue to read Psalm 8, man, his destiny is to be elevated and enthroned over all creation. So, so God, God has made man a little lower than the angels. The law is mediated through the angels, but man's destiny in Christ is to be over all creation. So Paul in 1 Corinthians makes this uh, comment that makes us scratch our head. He says, don't you know that we will judge angels? Oh yeah, I knew that, Paul. I, knew, I know exactly what you're talking about. What is he talking about? I don't know. That we're going to judge angels. Peter indicates that there are aspects of the gospel that are mysteries to the angels, right? He says there are things that the angels desire to look into. So at some point in the transition to the new heavens and the new earth, angels yield to people. And it seems like also, it seems reasonable that they would yield in the heavenlies. Understand that before the sacrifice of Jesus, there were no men in heaven. There were, no, there were no humans in heaven. Without the work of Jesus, man cannot be in God's presence. So all of these thrones and posts and positions in the heavenlies are filled with angels. But because of Jesus, heaven gets populated by men. Angels are just keeping the seats warm, perhaps, until these seats are populated, these thrones are populated by humanity. Verse 5, and from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the pillars of the temple, which are referenced in um, the letter to Philadelphia. The pillars of the temple, remember, had these ornamental pomegranates hanging on chains so that they gonged against the sides of the pillars and the the temple itself was always making music. The high priest wore bells around the edge of his garment so that whenever he walked, there was always music. There was always sound coming from the temple. There was always sound coming from the inside. And in the same way, there is always sound coming out of the glory cloud. Whenever we see the glory cloud mentioned and referenced in the scriptures, there's a rushing mighty wind. There's thunderings and voices and lightning. The sound of a host of angels flapping their wings and, and singing. All these sounds coming out of the presence of God. When you approach God at the tabernacle or the temple or in this heavenly temple, there is sound and there is smell in the presence of God. And it's always happening. There's always this flurry of activity. There's all this stuff going on. If you'll humor me for just a minute, this is why I can't wait to plant our flag on a piece of property with a sanctuary that is ours, that we can walk into and use any of the day of the week, so that this kind of thing is our testimony to our community. What's going on? I don't know. There's always something going on there. It's always music and thunder and lightning and something's going on there all the time. There is life and there is a presence there because that's the way it was. Not that I'm looking to burden your schedule and burden your calendar. Don't walk, oh, I don't. <laughs> but I want life and I want 
festivity. I don't want celebration. I don't want music because that's what you have at the sanctuary. That's what you have at the holy place. That's where you, that's what you have in God's presence. And how do you know you're in God's presence? Because you hear music and sound and there's life and there's movement and there's activity and it smells good and it tastes good. There's good things for my heart and good things for my soul. And that's what we get when we come into God's presence. We have also seven lamps, which signifies the sevenfold spirit of God. And stretched before the throne of God is a sea of glass, a body of water so perfectly still. It's like ice. It isn't tumultuous. It isn't raging. It's at rest. When Jesus calms the waters with his voice, He tells the waters, you better behave like the waters in heaven because the waters in heaven are still. They're not dangerous. They're at rest. But there is water between the entrance of the heavenly temple and God's throne. This sea of glass is before God's throne. And when you enter the heavenly temple, there's water between you and God. Water stands between the worshiper and God. There's water between the heavens and the earth in the form of the firmament. And in the Old Testament, God is always delivering his people through water. He's always bringing them out of old worlds into new worlds through water. Noah was delivered through water. Moses leads the children of Israel through the Red Sea. Joshua leads the children of Israel through the Jordan River. In Ezekiel, God's people cross into the new phase of history across the river Chebar into Babylon. When Jesus begins his ministry, what does he do? Well, he goes out of the land and he comes back in through baptism at the Jordan River to do a new conquest. He's the new Joshua. He's starting a new conquest of the land. And then throughout his ministry, he goes back and forth across the Sea of Galilee, across the water. There is access into God's presence, but it comes through water. It comes through purification. It comes through cleansing. Israel could not enter their sanctuary, whether it was the tabernacle or whether it was the temple. They couldn't come through except through water, through baptisms, through washings, through purification. The sacrificial animal would be cleansed with pure water before being placed on the throne, before being placed on the altar. God brought nations and families through water. He delivered them through water. And on the other side of the water, you always have a new creation. There's a new thing. And so he does the same with us. In the new covenant, we have passed through water into the church. And so we see here the only way to get to his throne, the only way to get to his presence is through water. And there we have fellowship and dominion. And this is a spoiler. When we get to chapter 15, the saints are standing over this sea and the sea is on fire and they're singing the song of Moses. Just bury that in the back of your head. And think about that for a while. What is that? Why are they singing the song of Moses? Why is it on fire? Why are they standing over it? We'll get there. Just think about that. Maybe read, get to chapter 15 and read it. But this sea comes up again. Well, what do you notice about all these features of the heavenly court? Well, we have a throne. We have lampstands. We have a body of water. We have a sea. What do we have here? Well, it mirrors the furnishings of the tabernacle, it mirrors the furnishings of the temple. The Ark of the Covenant was the throne covered with the mercy seat. There were lampstands. The tabernacle had the labor of cleansing. It had water. The temple has a bronze sea. It's called a sea in the temple courtyard. Earthly sanctuaries model heavenly sanctuaries. Our worship mirrors heaven's worship. But what's missing here? There are a couple of things missing. We don't see them here. Well, we don't have a table. We don't have a table of showbread. You know, the table with the 12 loaves piled up 
on it representing Israel, worshiping before the face of Yahweh. The, the loaves on the table sat before the light of the candlestick. And these are the 12 tribes uh, being illuminated by God and his word and his presence. We don't have a table of showbread, but what do we have? We have 24 elders in place. See, we don't have the image, but we have the reality here. We also don't have an altar of incense sending up a sweet-smelling sacrifice, but we do have the, the worship, the incense of the worship of the cherubim in the next verses we're about to read, which reminds us of a theme that we studied back in Samuel, and that is the temple. God's holy temple is not the architecture. The temple is not the furniture. The temple is the people. David was first enthroned with the people of God organized around him, and that was necessary before the architectural temple was built. First, you organize the people around the king. You have the living stones around the king. And then you get the architecture was just an extension of the living temple. And we see that in heaven as well. In the place of some of the furniture that we would expect to see, we have creatures, we have angels, we have people who worship instead of furniture. And let's continue. In the midst of the throne and around the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. These uh, mysterious heavenly creatures are the cherubim that Isaiah saw and that Ezekiel saw when they're given a peek into the heavenlies. Cherubs are not fat babies with wings. Cherubs are these four overwhelmingly magnificent living creatures that exist to praise God day and night around his throne. And they have in them, we see the face of an ox, the face of a lion, the face of an eagle, and the face of the man. They represent four different kinds of life on earth, four different classifications of animals we see in creation in Genesis 1. And throughout church history, theologians have made connections between the faces of the cherubim and the representation of the animals there to the phases of maturity throughout the, the history of mankind. Uh, and connections to the Gospels. Uh, very quickly, I'll just give you a little taste of this. Uh, the ox, the face of the ox of the cherubim. Uh, the ox is the principal sacrificial animal, and the ox is iconic for the first phase of Israel's history, the priestly phase of Israel's history. Uh, an ox is a great uh, picture, great icon for the priestly age. But after the priestly age, we mature into the kingly age of history. And there we have the regal face of a lion. Lions are kingly in the scriptures. They're always associated with kings. And after the time of the kings, the prophets rise to prevalence. And so we transition to prophetic maturity. Eagles soar over the earth. They can see great 
distances, so they're fitting symbols of prophetic foresight and insight. So we have, in the Old Testament, we have the law, and then we have the age of the kings, and then we have the prophets. And so we have the ox books, and then we have the lion books, and then we have the eagle books, and then what do we get after that? Well, we get the man books, right? We get the man, Jesus Christ. We've had priests, we've had kings, we've had prophets, man has matured through these stages, and now we get the high priest, the great king, the faithful prophet of God, Jesus. And so we have the man, the face of the man, Jesus Christ, the great priest, king, and prophet. So um, priest, king, prophet, Jesus is a helpful outline of the Bible. You can, you can just outline the Bible using those four words, priest, king, prophet, Jesus. That's, that's how the Bible goes. Another way of putting it is ox, lion, eagle, man. That's, that's the way it goes. Uh, the four faces of the cherubim also line up nicely with the four perspectives that we get of Jesus in the Gospels. Matthew is the first book. It's the most Jewish book, and it shows Jesus as the faithful priest. So uh, Matthew is the ox gospel. In Mark, Jesus is the mighty man of action. He's always taking the battle to the demons. Jesus is very kingly in Mark. So Mark is the lion book. Luke's picture of Jesus is very prophetic. Jesus is driven by the spirit. He's on a prophetic journey. He's on a mission to get to these cities and preach the gospel in these cities. So Luke is the eagle gospel. And in John, Jesus is the word made flesh. And so John is the man gospel. Again, ox, lion, eagle, man. So what? You're saying. <laughs> so what? That's neat. That's cool. Well, what about it? What, what's this? Well, these cherubim, these creatures around the throne of God, reflect all of creation before the Father. They reflect the whole of redemptive history before God, and they reflect the work of Jesus in all of his offices before the face of the Father. And through that, they offer ceaseless praise such that when we get this first glimpse into heaven, we see all of creation there. We see all of history there. We see the completed work of Jesus there. And it's all pointed in the same direction toward the throne of God. Ceaselessly, day and night, it's all directed toward God. We pull back the curtain just a little bit and we get to peek into heaven and there are smells. There are bowls of incense about to come. There are burning lamps here. There are smells. There are indescribable sounds. There is a sensory overload of color. Every color that exists in gems and every color that exists in the rainbow and in light. There are creatures and angels. There are representations of animals and men all singing and shouting and rejoicing and all this flurry of activity is all focused in the same direction and it's all to the throne in the middle of it all. There's this flurry of organized movement and activity and this is how things look and how they smell and how they sound in the control room for the whole cosmos, in the throne room of God. And the content of their praise is, you are worthy for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. This is not a God who created something, who set something into motion and walked away from it. This is not a God who created something called nature with a capital N and set in motion laws of nature, capital L, capital N, and then walked away from it so that now it's something he can no longer control. It just kind of does its own thing. If it wants to have a hurricane, if it wants to have an earthquake, if it wants to do something crazy, sometimes it does these things in spite of him. It's not what he wants, but boy, he's 
just wringing his hands because he's subjects to the law of nature. That is not what we see in the throne room of God. What we see in the praise of the cherubim is that all of creation is set before God, completely subject to God, continually doing the will of God. Matter, space, and time are all created by God and are all ruled directly, actively, personally by God. The spirit that hovered over the waters of creation still hovers over the earth. The the praise of the elders is by your will, they exist. This is something we see all over scripture in Colossians. He is before all things and in him, all things consist. Jesus is holding everything together by the word of his power. He gives life and breath to all flesh, we read repeatedly in the scriptures. This is not an impersonal creation that we live in, ruled by laws of nature, which have nothing to do with God's present, personal, active rule in them. You see, science can can, can pick up on predictable patterns in the created world. We can do science because the world is being run by a logical God. Technology works. When you turn on your television, you flip on a light, or you walk across a bridge, or you take an elevator, these things work, and and engineers can build things that stay up and hold weight because God is holding the universe together. Modern man wants to hold on to this narrative of a random, chaotic, impersonal universe, and at the same time have a cell phone that works. You can't have both. You cannot have both. Which one do you want? Do you want the random chaotic universe or do you want the one that works? The one that's superintended by the Holy Spirit of a logical, consistent, faithful God. That's what we see in the throne room of God. All, the, all of creation in the faces of the cherubim is presented before the face of God and he rules over it lovingly, mercifully working out his good pleasure. I'm going to wrap it up and I promise. A lot of younger people are expressing concern an extraordinary amount of anxiety right now over the way that this year has started. Uh, 2020 started, we got a new plague, you know, we almost had World War III, we're in the middle of an impeachment, everything's falling apart. We've got volcanoes and earthquakes, it's the end of the world. It's the end of the world. 2020, that's it, wrap it up, it's over. Well, it's not the end of the world. Experience gives you the perspective that all of this has happened before and we're still here. But the scriptures give you more than perspective. They give you wisdom and insight and hope for why we're going to be okay. It's because God is on his throne and he's surrounded by his rainbow. He has all of creation singing his praises for which he is most worthy. And he's surrounded by his counsel his people. We are another kind of rainbow. Israel was represented by those colors, those gems on the high priest's breastplate. Some of those gems are mentioned here. The throne of God is surrounded by his gem people, by his counselors adorned, reflecting light, a kind of human rainbow. We in worship today have ascended to worship with the elders and the angels and the cherubim. We in worship preserve human culture. We intercede. We hold forth the word and the covenant of God. Why doesn't God just zap the world and be done with it? Why didn't he do that today? I mean, there are lots of reasons he could just zap the world and be done with it, and it would be all over. Why doesn't he do that? Well, it's because when the sun rose on the Lord's Day today, when the sun rose in Japan and Australia today, people got up and they entered the heavenlies in worship, and they sang the Psalms. People who had passed through the waters joined the human rainbow, the people of the covenant, 
And as the sun passed over the earth, over, over China and over India and over Russia and over the African nations, people got up and they entered his presence and they gathered around his throne and they worshiped him. And then North America and South America, it's happening right now. All in the spirit on the Lord's day, they get called up and Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And we tell him, we tell him we need some things fixed and we need some, some things sorted out and we need some people healed and we need some people protected. And God preserves the earth. He holds things together. He holds it together by the word of his power. I can't tell you when we're getting flying cars. I can't tell you when the next war is going to be. I can't tell you when society is going to collapse. Revelation doesn't talk about any of that. But I can tell you that the earth is going to become more and more like heaven. What's the priority in heaven? Worship and pleasing God. Everything focused on that throne in the middle. And that is what earth is going to be like. And so that's why we, we get a head start. We get a head start on the future. We're the future. We're the futuristic people. We are here today getting a head start on the future. This is the future. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for this image, this picture of your throne room, and we are delighted to be able to come into it today into your presence. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for cleansing of us of our sins. Father, hear the prayers and the praises that we bring to you today as we participate in this ongoing heavenly worship that goes on around your throne. So Father, bless us and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.